Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Matthew 4, <laughs> uh, verse 1 to 11. When Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, oh, sorry, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hand, hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. Uh, good evening, everyone. Very good to be here and with you uh, this evening, uh, St Matthew's Uni Church. If I've not met you before, my name's Roger and I'm one of the ministers here at St Matthew's. It's um, great to be able to bring God's word to you tonight. We'll get on, we'll get on with it. Uh, it'd be good if you've got Psalm 63 uh, in front of you. That would be great. We're going to be looking at that tonight. Well, the wilderness is one of the primary ways that the scripture identifies and describes uh, the suffering and the pain and the longing that God's people experience as we make the difficult journey home to God. Um, we're most familiar with Israel's wandering in the wilderness for 40 years after the exodus from Egypt as they waited, waited to enter the promised land. And uh, in Deuteronomy 8, God, ex God explains through Moses the reason for Israel's wilderness experience. He said, uh, to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands, and to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
Well, wilderness themes appear throughout the Psalms and in the prophets, and they were especially keen when Israel were exiled to Babylon. And indeed, ever since God's people were cast out of the Garden of Eden, times in the wilderness are a vivid reminder to the people of God of their homesickness. Uh, And in the New Testament, the wilderness theme is picked up um, metaphorically rather than literally. So in 1 Peter, um, the Christian believers of that letter are described as sojourners and exiles. Uh, Christians are not literally exiles from our homeland, but we have this ongoing sense of living in the wilderness because we've not yet arrived at our true eternal home. And indeed, every time that we experience all kinds of trials or illness or pain or temptation and sin, it's a reminder to us that we are not there yet. Just as parents say to their kids in the car on the way to a holiday, no, we're not there yet. And our our struggles are another reminder to long for and to set our hopes on what is certain, our promised eternal uh, inheritance. So I want to ask you a question tonight that I want you to think about for the rest of the night along, uh, as we look at this psalm. I want to ask you, what's your wilderness experience like? And I'm not asking for someone to tell us about their exciting trek to uh, a remote part of our state. I could tell you about some pretty exciting walks up some mountains in the Stirling Ranges um, some years ago um, and other such walks. But, you know, we can't all talk about that kind of wilderness experience. And yet... I'm confident that every person in this room has had a wilderness experience in this past week. And some of these experiences and their impacts will continue on into the next week or even months or years. That you have got some story that you could tell about hardship or struggle or hurt or loss or trials or temptations. And that's because we are still in the wilderness And so in in the next 20 minutes or so, I'd like you to keep a particular event, a particular recent, not necessarily event, but a particular recent wilderness experience in your mind today. And then with the help of God's spirit from this psalm, um, allow that to speak into your experience. So I wonder what particular experience uh, of the wilderness comes to mind for you. Well, let me tell you uh, something about the setting, the possible setting of this psalm. David wrote Psalm 63 while he was in the wilderness in Judah. Um, The title of the psalm tells us that, and it's suggested by the thirst of verse 1. Verse 9 tells us of the threat he was facing, that people wanted to kill him and they were after him, that David is is expecting warfare. Verse 11 suggests he was already king of Israel. I I think we can most likely connect what he writes here um, with that time when his son Absalom rebelled against him and sought to kill him in order to take his throne. And uh, in a narrative that includes detail of David and his people's journey in the wilderness, uh, it goes like this at one point. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted, Uh, And there he refreshed himself. Well, you could read some more about David's wilderness experience in 2 Samuel 15 to 17. Uh, This is so unexpected, in a way, that David was God's anointed king. 
and a man after God's heart. His day-to-day life included palaces and servants and riches and everything at his disposal. But all of these privileges don't spare him from suffering. And how much it must have hurt him that his suffering was due in large part to the rebellion and the betrayal of his own child. And it's tempting um, to believe that because we live faithfully as a child of God or because of our numerous earthly provisions and pleasures um, that we're not going to suffer. It's tempting to think that and believe that. But it's not true. We remain vulnerable. We are in the wilderness. And Psalm 63 is a part of the Bible that shows us that. Shows us that. But it also shows us how to relate to God in the harsh wilderness. And Psalm 63 gives us a really beautiful picture, not only of the bond between God and his anointed king, but also a picture of the kind of living faith um, all of God's people are called to. See, in the wilderness, we need the eyes of faith um, to see what is true beyond the pain. And Psalm 63 um, is not the kind of big sweeping narrative of the wilderness experience of Israel in the desert, but it's rather a concise and beautiful picture of what the living faith of one person looks like in the midst of suffering and of hardship. So what we're going to do for the next little while is walk through the psalm together and we're going to see in three ways what living faith in the wilderness looks like. And we'll also see three very important things at each of those points about God, which fuels that lively faith, uh, the lively faith of the writer of this psalm, and can fuel our faith too. So firstly, uh, in in verses 1 to 4, David says, I thirst for you. And um, I, I like the language of some of the older translations, actually, at all of these points, where it says, my soul thirsts for you. In the wilderness, under threat, David's longing is for God. He, he may have actually been thirsty, yes, in the wilderness, but the vivid imagery of thirsting in the desert reveals his longing for God. His longing for God is pictured like the desperate situation of land without life-giving water, like land thirsting for water to give it life. And though he faces physical threats and deprivation... Um, It is spiritual provision, it's spiritual nourishment that he longs for with his whole being. You know, so as he begins the psalm, it's not clear that he's going to make it out alive. So what does he do in trouble? He prays. He honestly cries out to God, confessing that what he needs most is he needs God. And it it reminds me of James 5 verse 13, that is anyone among you in trouble Let them pray. And we see this modelled time and time again in the Psalms. Now, what do you think? Um, Does he have any confidence here that the Lord will hear his prayer? It's the right question to ask. It could well be that in his desperate situation, away from home, away from Jerusalem, in the wilderness, attackers pursuing him, that he could forget that God is there and that God is for him. Yet there is, in this psalm, there's a remarkably confident tone in the whole psalm. Remarkable because even in the midst of those desperate circumstances, there is lively faith and deep devotion uh, to God. And it's the tone right from the start of the psalm 
through to the end of it. See how he starts? Simply and confidently praying to God, you God are my God. That's the language of all of God's covenant people, people who know God, people who know the God who promises uh, throughout the scriptures repeatedly to his people, I will be their God and they will be my people. And, um, and in verses 2 to 4, he, he remembers uh, happier days when he had worshipped God in the sanctuary and when God had revealed his power and his glory and his love. And here David is acknowledging that, that God hasn't changed. He's the same God now in the wilderness, the same God whose power and love he has known in the past. And he is acknowledging that God will be the same God Now in the wilderness, desert or no desert, sanctuary or no sanctuary, David is confident in his God and in God's power and love. Now so much is this true that we have this amazing expression of faith in verse verse 3. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. That if, if, if it was the setting of his son Abimelech chasing him, well, even when his own son is seeking to take his life, David is assured that God's steadfast love will remain with him, that God's love will be constant. God's steadfast love for his people in the Bible means that God will be faithful in keeping his promises to his people to establish his kingdom, including uh, his covenant with David. And, uh, and David says that, that God's everlasting and unfailing love is even better than life itself. David, I think, here is trying to express the inexpressible. He's trying to express the wonder that he feels uh, as someone who experiences God's love. And it's a remarkable statement because, because God's steadfast love is celebrated throughout the Psalms because it rescues and protects and preserves God's people and it scatters and defeats the enemy. But when David ponders that God's love does all this, he concludes that um, love itself actually is better than life. Life is a wonderful gift from God, but the love of God is even better than having life. And by implication, then the love of God is better than anything this life has to offer us. Um, That's the kind of conviction that the army of Christian martyrs right throughout the centuries have have had, that to know Christ and his love, they counted that as a greater thing than even their own lives. It's the same kind of conviction, isn't it, um, that led Paul to risk his life for the sake of, of Christ. In Philippians, in the letter to the Philippians, he writes of the affection and the love of Christ for Christians and of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord, for whom he has lost all things. And he says that for him to die is gain and that he desires to depart this life and to be with Christ, which is better by far. Words worth remembering, aren't they? And taking to heart. And and here it's similar with David in Psalm 63. He says, your love is better than life. So, so how about us in our wilderness experience? Um, do we cry out to God and do we remember his power and his love? Here is something that might help you to pray when you're struggling 
Think about what imagery describes your situation. It might be similar to the psalm, that you feel like you're in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Or maybe it's some other image that captures your feelings and experience that might express, might express it better. Maybe for you, life can feel like Groundhog Day. Every day feels the same. The routine, it goes around and around again and again, and every day is the same. Or, or at times, something that you have to face feels like you are being led up a mountain blindfolded and you just don't know what is ahead. Maybe that's an image that captures your experience at times. Using an image like this can be the start of being honest with God and bringing your specific need to him in prayer rather than just being general about it and moving on. And it helps because it is at this specific point of need um, that we will find that God's deep love for us in Christ, his mercies to us in Christ, are all that we need. He will meet us personally in that need. The personal knowledge of God's love for us, knowing for sure that he loves us, it surpasses any other knowledge. When you know that, it's all you need to know. God's love for you in Christ is what the Christian indeed is to thank and praise God for every day of their life because it is so precious. Um, It is of unsurpassing worth. So here's David, earnestly sought God in desperate need. He remembered and found again that God's love is better than life and he pledged to praise God as long as he lives. And so then in verses 5 to 8, The mood of being in great need now changes to a mood of being satisfied. See, it's it's not my soul thirsts for you now, but it's my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods, as like in a great feast in verse 5. He is certain that God will satisfy his soul, that God will provide the living water and the bread of life that sustains all of God's children, that that he will do that in abundance like a great feast. In his thirst and in his hunger, he looks to God. He doesn't seek comfort outside of God by pursuing his own selfish desires. He doesn't look for food that will not satisfy. He looks to God. He is entirely God-focused. Verse verse 7, you are my help. He looks for satisfaction only in God. He does this not only when he's in the sanctuary in verse 2, But in verse 6, even on his bed and through the watches of the night, that is, through the long hours of the night, he remembers and he meditates. You know, it seems here that David's routine is to remember how God has been his help and then to allow that to drive out all of the anxieties of the world. Perhaps as he lay on his bed in the long hours of the night, he remembered when God enabled him Uh, to conquer the Philistines with one small stone and a slingshot. Perhaps one of the numerous times um, uh, God spared him from King Saul's murderous intent, King Saul's murderous intent, that maybe that's what he remembered. Or maybe remembering what God had done for him um, would would importantly remind him that God was faithful to his promise to David to establish his kingdom, to establish his throne. Or, Or maybe he recalls his great fall into sin with Bathsheba, how God forgave him and cleansed him and led him to genuine repentance. 
See, based on God's practical and personal faithfulness in the past, David builds confidence that God will help him again. And notice here that, that David is not placing his, his hope in God taking him out of the wilderness. Um, in fact, in this psalm, he doesn't pray for God to deliver him from his present circumstances. Um, that would not be a wrong thing to pray, and there are other psalms that do that, but he doesn't do that here. He, he draws upon the character and the promises and the presence of God, and he remembers how God provided all that he needed in the past. And that's what now orientates him in the present, in the wilderness. He turns to God and he perseveres in faith in the midst of the wilderness. And it's only in turning to God like this um, will the soul be satisfied. Um, so, so what about us in our wilderness experience? What about the thing I've asked you to think about tonight? Um, remember how God has been faithful to you in the past. Remember when you have experienced his help and his strength. Remember specifically how he helped you, how he corrected you, how he encouraged you, how he strengthened you. Will he not help you again? Is he not faithful in strengthening our faith, um, in giving us all we need to persevere through trials and to stand firm through temptations? Of course he is, just as he promises and remember his faithfulness throughout the Bible. Think about um, what promises of God and what particular scriptures have encouraged you through trials in the past. If they've helped in the past, they'll help you again. Remember and meditate on them again. Or meditate on other scriptures that have been brought to your attention by your own reading or by a Christian brother or sister. It might even be Psalm 63 from tonight, mightn't it? And as you turn for the, to the Bible for help, then the Bible properly understood, um, it will lead you um, to Christ, to the fulfilment of all of God's promises in the scriptures, to find satisfaction um, for your soul uh, in him. Uh, in John 4, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well, um, everyone who drinks of this water uh, will be thirsty again. Um, but those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty forever. Uh, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to, a, to eternal life. We spiritually thirst, and our thirst is quenched by the Spirit of Christ revealing Christ to us in his word. Um, but, but that doesn't mean that the thirst is obliterated forever. And uh, John Piper, I think, helpfully shows here that, that this water is a spring welling up within us. And if that's the case, I mean, that means that we can go to it like a spring again and again and again. We need to come to Jesus through his word and by his spirit again and again to find satisfaction for our souls, to find God to be all that he promises to be for us in the Lord Jesus. Again and again, cry out to God in our need. Then God speaks to us in his word. That word brings understanding and comfort. And then that drives us to go back again and again to Jesus in his word, to the water of life for our souls. We listen to the voice of God in Christ through his spirit in the word. 
We're drawn back by the Bible to Jesus so that, so that we deepen our fellowship with him uh, and so that we can be the people that he wants us to be in the world. That, that in a nutshell, that's what true spirituality uh, is all about. You don't need to be initiated into some new or special or complicated method or te- technique to make sure that, you can, that you're really hearing God speak to you. No, he'll speak to your heart through his word by his spirit, a word that you need to hear. Just read the Bible thoughtfully and pray and meet with other Christians reading the Bible. And, uh, um, uh, uh, sorry, Re- read the Bible thoughtfully and pray and meet with other Christians who do the same and just keep doing it. That's how he exercised true spirituality. We do it imperfectly, don't we? we? We sort of skip the habit and so on, but we keep trying to make it our habit. That's the way to keep going, isn't it? So, so we've seen the movement um, in this psalm that David, uh, in the wilderness, in great need and under threat, longs first and foremost for God and to know his power and love. And we've seen that he expects his longing soul will be satisfied because God is his helper. He remembers that God has helped him in the past. And so he will help him um, again. He knows God will help him again. And thirdly, um, living faith in the wilderness looks like this. It's in verse 8. Because again, there's another, my soul. He says, my soul clings to you. Um, This clinging to the Lord is a strenuous clinging. Older translations put it like this. um, My soul followeth hard after thee, or... Or in other parts of the Old Testament, it's the word cleaving, as in the devotion in marriage where a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. Um, Or in Israel's loyalty to the Lord in Deuteronomy 10, fear the Lord your God and serve him, hold fast to him, that is, cleave to him, cleave to God and take your oaths in his name. Now, there are other things that David could have clung to. The strength of his armies his success and all the trappings that went with being a king, like the comforts of his palace, or he, or, or he could have just clung to nothing. He could, he could have given up and he could have given in to despair. But he clings to God and to God's promises, even if it doesn't mean deliverance and rescue up front. And so in our wilderness experiences, can I just ask you, what, what are you tempted to trust in other than God? You know, if you could, what would you change in your circumstances that you think needs to change to bring you satisfaction? It's a good soul-searching question because we need to remember that a change in our circumstances is not the measure of God's love for you. In fact, it's it's quite the opposite. The Bible tells us that we go through hardships because God is treating us as his children, it's because of his love for us that we might be disciplined and we might learn things from God. Or who or what is your hope? We can, of course, turn to so many different things instead of to God. To, and we do it so easily, don't we, because our hearts lead us astray, to cling to our finances, to, to pursue all kinds of pleasurable pursuits or or our success, or our reputation before others, any kind of quick fix of some kind to end the pain or to end the anxiety or the stress that that we feel. And we hope 
that these things might bring relief and contentment and satisfaction and joy. None of those things are wrong in themselves. They're good things given by God, but they are shadows that are meant to point us to the Lord's goodness and faithfulness. And that's what we are to depend on, not those, not those things that are his gifts. So active faith reaches out to take a firm hold of God and his promises, even when life has its unknowns and its pain. But, you know, if, if David stopped here, if he stopped at my soul clings to you, we might conclude that David's the hero of this psalm. We could almost do that in this psalm as we marvel at his devotion to the Lord in these trying circumstances. And we might think the main message is to imitate his example um, of, of a model of faith. That's there, but is it the main message? Again, we see something about God that lies behind David's lively faith. We've already seen it twice, haven't we? We've seen God's love, which is better than life, and we've seen that uh, where he says, God, you are my help. What will we see now? Verse 8 takes a, a beautiful turn. See how it reads? Firstly, there's, there's David's faith, my soul clings to you, and then your right hand upholds me. Your right hand upholds me. Here is the promise that allows his people to rest and to be refreshed in the wilderness. It's not just that I cling to God, but that he clings to me. David clings to God because he knows that God clings to him. Um, Dane Ortland, in his uh, great little book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. It's a great little book. I encourage you to read it. I'm going to read it again. Um, he gives the illustration of a little two-year-old child who holds on tight to his father's hand as they wade into the water. But a little two-year-old child's hand is not strong. It is weak. And then he says, and, and I quote, he says, Before long... It is not he holding on to me, but me holding on to him. Left to his own strength, he will certainly slip out of my hand. But if I have determined that he will not fall out of my grasp, he is secure. He can't get away from me if he tried. <laughs> David trusted in who God is and what God promised, all that God revealed about himself to David in the wilderness, and that's why he could cling, hold fast, follow hard, follow strenuously after God in the wilderness. He could only do it because God's right hand, the strong hand, upholds him. So, what about you? What about your wilderness experience? What would it look like to firmly trust that God is holding on to you in your wilderness experience? What difference would it make in your situation? How, how would that actually change your experience of being in the wilderness? Imagine what that might be like. Uh, talk these things over with a Christian brother or sister and pray about it together. Much good can come out of these conversations, not only for you but for them as well. They might tell you about some similar things and you could pray for them. These conversations need to be a, a vital part of our fellowship at St Matthew's. Well, um, out, of, out of all of the wilderness stories of the Bible, 
Um, there is one person who stands out who has preeminence. We're rightly impressed with David's faith in Psalm 63, but Jesus' faithfulness in the wilderness shines. We read it earlier. We read in Matthew's Gospel, he was faithful in response to all that the devil threw at him when he was tested for 40 days and 40 nights in the, in the desert and he was hungry. His devotion to God, his unswerving obedience and love for God under severe trial was unequaled. And his faithfulness meant that he willingly obeyed his father and endured all the way to the cross. He came to do his father's will that by his sacrifice, the penalty and the power of sin, our sin, was removed so that we could be forgiven and that we could draw near to God and we could look forward with confidence and certain hope to our heavenly home. It's because of his faithfulness in the wilderness that by trusting in him, he's made certain that one day our wilderness experience will end. And, And he clings to us until the end. And until then, we join with David in bringing the troubles of this life to the Lord in prayer, speaking honestly with him, uh, with them, uh, to him about them, trusting in God's personal help and enduring hardship, even with joy, because we know that through them, God in his love is teaching us things we need to know. We keep trusting as the Psalms have, this psalm has shown us. We thirst for him, we're satisfied in him, and we cling to him. And you know, what we, are, we are to do what Israel was meant to do in the wilderness, but they didn't. Instead, they grumbled and complained. We're meant to do what David did in Psalm 63. And we're meant to do uh, what Jesus uh, did perfectly in the wilderness. We're meant to do what the New Testament instructs us to do in the wilderness, to nourish us and replenish us in our faith in a dry and parched land. We are to feed on God's words because as it is written, more than once in the Bible, (laughs) we've heard two of those places tonight, man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We're to feed on his word for life like a newborn baby does, craving pure spiritual milk, so that our hearts won't be deceived by sin and so we'll grow up in our salvation. So in the wilderness of this life, feed on God's word so that you'll be quick to fix your thoughts on Jesus and cling to him, knowing that he's clinging to you and he will see you safely home. Let's pray. Oh, good Lord, please teach us to feed on your word so that in all of the barren places of life uh, we may find the fountain of your presence and so be replenished um, in your service. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.